Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Terry Goss Kinsey, the president at Illinois State University. Welcome, Terry. Thanks, Brent. It's great to be here with you today. So we connected at the Association for Governing Boards Conference in Florida earlier this year in January, and there weren't a lot of presidents there, but you were there with your colleague, Pat Vickerman. We had the opportunity to connect. It was really fun to kind of, um, you know, first of all, it was our first conference for most of us in a couple of years. So that that was just fun in and of itself. But um, but it was great to kind of see you as a, as a president present at that conference. Thanks. And I'll say it was really good to be there. It, one of the lessons they talked about that I, I think was really informative is to think about the folks that are really critical for advancement are, your, of course, your, your vice president for advancement, university president, your board of trustees representative, and, you know, the chair of your foundation board. And so I was glad to be there. Uh, three of the four of us were there from Illinois State University. So I think it was a really great opportunity to interact and think about the future of Illinois State University. Not only to bond a little bit, to learn um, and just spend some time, you know, in real life. And so it was great to meet you, but we were starting to talk about it. I was selling you, actually, if you might recall, that you should have a podcast. Uh, we were going to call it Terry Talk. And what I've now found out as we sit here on May 3rd and we are recording this, that this is Terry's third podcast appearance in the last two weeks. So while she doesn't have her own show yet, three in a couple of weeks is a lot. Are, are you sure you are ready for this? I, it's more fun every time I do it, and uh, they've all been extremely different topics, so that's, uh, there's a lot to talk about, so I'm happy to do it. Well, here's a question that I'm going to bet nobody has asked you on these podcasts yet, which is, uh, we love learning about the higher education journey of our guests, and uh, oftentimes we can link who you are today with, you know, who you were uh, in high school, for example. So take me back to junior, senior year of high school. Who was that, Terry? What was she into? And what led her to study chemistry at the University of Akron? Yeah, that's a great question. So I can honestly say that um, I'm, a, I'm a scientist by training, a biomedical scientist, and I have loved science since junior high school and, and high school. And that's pretty amazing that the fact that I'm actually a first-generation college student graduate. My mother went to vocational school as a bookkeeper, and my dad stopped um, school somewhere between third and fifth grade. We don't exactly know where. And so I have always loved science, math. Uh, I think a lot of kids do. And my parents always supported me in that. I had the, you know, the little chemistry set. I had the little um, microscope. And my parents had a subscription to National Geographic, which I read cover to cover. And so, so there was that part. Um, I played trombone in the marching band. And then I worked because I was saving up money to go to college. So I can make an amazing ice cream cone at a soft serve machine. So uh, that's my secret talent. And can I just ask, um, as a fellow first-gen college student, you know, there are just things that are oftentimes not talked about at home that uh, you might take for granted if you grew up in a household where one or both parents went to college. Um, for example, I never heard a story about what it was like at college, right? Um, but at the same time, it was clear in my life from an early age, and it was in yours, uh, that that was going to be a part of your career path or an aspiration, even though your dad didn't graduate high school. And so I'm just curious, what drove that interest and commitment, even without it necessarily being a clear example um, that you could follow? 
I think I, I give a lot of credit to my high school science teachers that recognized how much I love science and encouraged me to look into this path of great advising in high school when my parents couldn't have that opportunity. And the fact that I was really fortunate the University of Akron was not far from home. It was a place I could understand. It was big enough to have really fabulous opportunities, but small enough that I didn't get lost. So I think I, I in fact, it's the only school I applied to. The world's a little bit different now. People apply to a lot more colleges, but it's, uh, you know, it, sometimes it just takes one door to open for you to really go through it and have a lot of success. So I'm going to just go out on a limb and say the Raise podcast uh, audience, though very strong and capable, we are rusty in our chemistry knowledge. So what's like the one or two things we should all just know about chemistry that we've probably forgotten or never knew? So I think the things to think about chemistry is it's so fundamental to everything that we do. People talk about sodium chloride, but that's table salt, right? Um, your body's made up of chemicals. And I like people to think about, if you're not sure, ask. So when you get your blood work back from the doctor, they'll look at things like potassium levels in your blood. And it's a very important marker. Ask what that is. You know, it's a very, it's just a part of your normal body that helps it function. Possibly get rid of some of that idea that chemistry is some foreign thing. Chemistry is part of everything that we are. And so um, I happen to study my career, how proteins are made in the body. And so you're completely made out of chemicals. All of these different um, amino acids that you may have heard of and you talk about eating a high protein diet, that's chemistry too. So actually you, you, you experience it every day and you could probably understand it better. People should not be afraid of chemistry. No fear. I love it. Simple message. And uh, we will take that with us for sure. So tell me a little bit about, you know, it's one thing to have great high school teachers, another thing to uh, be motivated to pursue it yourself, uh, a whole other thing to start going down the PhD path. And so at what point did it really start to click for you where you started to think, hey, I might actually prefer to be uh, an education, uh, you know, work in education rather than work in chemistry per se. Yeah, and so um, one of the things about my undergraduate education is uh, after my sophomore year, I ended up as a cooperative education student at Standard Oil of Ohio. So I go to school a semester and I work a semester. And that's really what got me through college and helped me pay for it. And they hired me right out of college. So unlike a lot of people that go straight from undergraduate to get their PhD, I actually worked in industry for several years. And I love it. And it's one of the reasons I'm really passionate about universities having strong interactions with corporations. And it was there that I recognized that the people with the PhDs got to have all the fun. And so Standard Oil of Ohio actually paid for me to go back and start taking PhD courses. And then went on a leave of absence to get my PhD at Case Western Reserve, which happened, again, just to be really close to where I work, about a half hour drive. Um, it was the accommodations of people there that believed in me that I got to get my PhD. And that's where the, I sort of came to realize that I wanted to you know, do the fellowship path and, and see what opportunities were out there. Uh, I'm going to say that for, for, again, most of us, we would view there to be very few more challenging uh, degrees to go and pursue than a PhD in chemistry. Uh, clearly, you're passionate about it. Um, and capable, were there any challenging moments? Like when you think about the hardest 
part of that, either undergrad or grad, did you did you doubt it at any point, or was it clear you were going to uh, make it through? I think that almost everybody doubts it at some point. And in my case, during my PhD, I was working on a project, and I was getting ready to publish a scientific manuscript, and another group in Europe, and this is before the internet, this is maybe old, right? published some work that was similar, not identical. And I, I was literally crushed. In fact, my parents lived about an hour and a half away. I drove home and I just was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do, my career's over. My dad and mom were like, okay, you pouted for one day, go back. My advisor was like, oh, this is gonna help our work go much faster. Our paper's gonna be better. You know, he was just, Dr. Bill Merrick, he's with him, he's fabulous positive mentor. And he's like, okay, now we're just, we can skip a few experiments and do more. And I think that's resiliency. I actually appreciate the challenges I've overcome because I think it's helped me to, to understand that that's just a part of what we all experience. I'm sure even you, Brent, at some time have faced a challenge that's made you stronger. <laughs> I mean, it's only 3.40 today. So, you know, there's still time uh, even today. But no, I, I hear you. I mean, I think, look, it does, it does not matter what pursuit, uh, what academic study, what uh, endeavor professionally, personally. Uh, I am obsessed with the book Grit. I recently read it. I can't stop thinking about it. I don't know if you've read it. If you haven't, everybody listening, you should, um, because there are a few things, you know, uh, if you can persevere, it really doesn't matter what it is. Odds are, uh, if you could stick it out longer than, than others, um, you're going to land in a, in a pretty good spot most of the time. Um, you know, and, and, and it is a long path um, to pursue what you pursued. Can I just ask, what is a postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon University? What do you do post-PhD in that role? Yeah, so that is a great question. In, in my discipline and some others, um, you spend three to five years um, with your PhD, but working under another faculty person who helps you to develop a program that becomes your independent research. So I left from doing biochemistry at Peace Western Reserve and I went work for Dr. John Wolford at Carnegie Mellon. I learned genetics. We put those together and from there went to get my own lab. And, and I'll always be grateful. The American Cancer Society gave me a fellowship that paid for my training for three of those four years. Um, and so, you know, that kind of investment someone makes in between when you're young and gives you a little bit more freedom to pursue your own ideas. It allows you to mature as a scientist and as a leader to be able to get a job, whether it's in industry or for me, I don't think it's That is an example, uh, right? Fellowship, um, the intersection of, of your work and philanthropy. Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, because now we're talking 10 years since graduating from college to do the PhD, to do the postdoctoral fellowship, um, and then ultimately um, start really the, the teaching career um, at Rutgers University. Um, was fundraising on your radar yet? I mean, on one hand, you're a beneficiary of philanthropy in certain regards, but uh, it took me a while at least to really even know what that word meant. Um, was it on your radar by the time you showed up for the first day of work as a professor at Rutgers? No, not at all. And I'll say that's not the only philanthropic support that supported my research. I was also for uh, funded at one point by the American Heart Association and the Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers of America, which is a philanthropic arm of the pharmaceutical industry. And 
I think after you've done that a while and you look back at it, you come to realize that these philanthropic organizations see specific places where they can have an impact. And, and you do get loyalty to them. I had, I have, will always be loyal to these organizations. A lot of them still keep track of me. So pharmaceutical research manufacturers, they'd like to know where their alumni go because they support you as a young faculty member when you really need the help. That support at that point in my career was transformational. And so they they like to see the people that support you well. I think that helps to keep their programs going. And I think while I eventually learned the value and the power and the and the and the, the gratitude you feel both as a recipient and as a giver from there, I think it's really helped me to encourage people to look at foundations as a part of, of how we support really important initiatives in this country. Very well said. Tell me a little bit about those, I don't know, that first semester as a professor, or when you think about all of those eyes, you know, staring at you, um, humbling, exciting. I mean, because obviously when you're in the seat as a student, you assume the professors know everything about everything, right? Um, what's it actually like? I imagine there's a little bit of like acting that goes along with it, right? Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty terrifying. So I actually was at a medical school. And so I was mostly teaching medical students and graduate students. So I was very fortunate. My first semester, I didn't have to teach. So they were really careful about helping people succeed by giving them a little break. And they slowly built up my teaching portfolio. The teaching the medical students for me was about learning what they got excited about. Because I could get very excited about some very dry facts about fungi, because I would teach about fungi. I did a lot of my work in, um, in, in fungal systems. But they got really excited when I showed pictures of actual patients that have ringworm or something, and how to capture the imagination of students, and to, to not lecture, but tell a story. But I love stories. And the same thing with graduate students and teaching them and getting them to, to not just listen, but to get them to engage, to ask questions, or to, to, to find ways that it's, it's really an interactive process. Those are skills that took some years to develop, but um, fortunately our good universities give you some of the resources to train you how to do that. So they don't just throw you into the deep end of the pool. And when you think about all those students you've worked with over the years, any, um, I don't know, success stories or folks that stand out where uh, you still, I don't know, reflect proudly on what they've gone on to do, knowing that you were a part of it? You know, it's one of the most fun things that's happened to me on Twitter is it's allowed me to reconnect with, with um, and the first undergraduate that worked in my lab, who's a faculty member out west, um, another student who rotated in my lab, so he, he checked it out, he went somewhere else, he's now at Rochester Institute of Technology, um, an undergrad I worked with as a postdoc, He's got his own research lab, and so I, social media has been a great way to stay connected and see how they're all doing, and um, I'm proud that each of them found their own way. They have a lot of different unique, I talked about a couple that are faculty members, but they could be working in industry, um, they could be working at the National Institute of Health and Administration, but it's great to see all the different things people do with their training that I had some small part in, I hope. Well, I was going to mention your Twitter account, um, burgeoning Twitter account that uh, really gives me and everybody a window into your world as uh, uh, you know, president of, of university and uh, just 
for those listening. Kinsey TG, K-I-N-Z-T-G is the handle. Uh, and I am curious, um, you know, we're going to jump around a little bit, but uh, prior to your role um, as president, were you as focused on social media? You know, how much of it are you doing versus maybe you've got colleagues that help you uh, manage it as well? Because it's a combination of, you know, um, you know, broadcasting, right? What's happening, right? What What's going on on campus, but also a window into what you're doing and what you're thinking. And I think it's a really, really powerful tool. And you are, I think, reflective of the generation of college presidents that um, has sort of more inherently been drawn to Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, some of these different platforms. Whereas when I started, you know, Evertree even 10 years ago, it was extremely rare for the presidents to actually have profiles on these pages, much less actively um, engage with them. So I'm just curious kind of what that what that uh, experience has been like. So it really started with an idea from um, my team when I was at uh, dean of, uh, associate dean of graduate school at Rutgers Robert Johnson Medical School. Uh, social media was sort of just really starting out. And they're like, would you do LinkedIn? And I think at that point it was Facebook. Eventually they asked me to do Twitter. Um, because students will find you and it will help us keep in contact with our, all of our students. And you can help their careers. And so, um, so I take those, the, the, the LinkedIn I still, I have, I um, link all the time with our students. I just did a leadership workshop for our students in the College of Applied Science and Technology and then talking about the value of networking. I'm like, this is my website. Reach out to me, let's connect. You know, I like to, it's hard to part how I know what my students are doing there. And Twitter is a little bit more fun. Um, you can do a little bit more around athletics, um, fine arts events, fun things happening on campus. Uh, Facebook is, that one's a little more challenging. I really don't do too much of that. It's not necessarily the college group. I need to get yeah. back to Instagram and I am not going to do TikTok. Nobody's got you doing the dances yet. No, no, not quite I'm yet. I'm not sure. Sometimes they'll eventually do something, but yeah. Now I'm, I'm trying to just focus. I do it myself, and I try to keep it focused on. So if yeah. you look at my Twitter, you'll see, you'll see sports, you'll see animals, you'll see university, you'll see science things. I think it's just amazing. I mean, it's so simple the way you put it, but the fact that, like, as a college president, you're not only addressing students, but you're saying connect with me on LinkedIn, like. The thought of having that kind of direct connection to my college president, or I, I imagine to most people listening to their college president, it's so obvious today, but it just seems like even getting a business card from a president or emailing the president would have seemed crazy, like sort of way too forward, I think, for most people. Um, and now you've got these connections that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now you'll still have it's 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 very cool and i just i want my students though to have really high quality pages you've got to have a picture right you, you, you have to have some substance to your page so i will say if somebody has a, a non-quality page they've got to get that fixed. i imagine some of your colleagues are are on top of this but we've seen a, a really neat trend both career services or even as it relates to orientation where you know, the professional headshot booth is becoming a part of that experience. And when you contrast that with 
um, you know, even, even a lot of um, professionals don't have professional headshots. It's really neat to see students being so well prepared um, the same way that uh, when we were in college, somebody would have helped you with your resume. Now it is about the professional um, kind of personal brand, the, the, the photo quality, et cetera, et cetera. It is your resume now, Brent, right? If you're, if you're looking to hire somebody, you're probably going to Google them and see what's on social media. If you're getting down your finalist. So how will they represent your brand? How will they represent your business or your university? Absolutely. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably come back to that in a minute, but I am curious as you sort of um, made this move to Western Michigan University, you know, you've had job titles that uh, people have just not had on this podcast before. So I'm just learning and, and curious to know, like, what does a vice president for research and innovation at Western Michigan University do? So I think it's one of the best jobs you can have at a university because your goal is to advance the research and creative scholarship of the faculty, students, and quite frankly, staff, because our universities often have staff that are doing research or running programs that are funded by external agencies. It's a really it's a job where you help people bring in external resources to support their work. So it could be federal, state, local grants, foundation grants like the Gates Foundation. Um, it could be corporate contracts. You also are involved in helping faculty that have really great innovations, commercialize them, patent them, license them. And then at Western Michigan and also here at Illinois State, a place where undergraduate students get support to help find opportunities to get hands-on activities as well. So you, you really are an ambassador. There's a lot of corporate engagement that goes on as well with companies. So it's really about that innovation aspect of the university. And But you are right that you would not have had a lot of people on this podcast because I, I just did a survey for presidents and you had to check your last job because we were the provost. Vice President for Advancement, Vice President for Student Affairs, Vice President for Government Affairs, or other. And I'm another, and I'm proud of it. So I know other others look for careers that maybe aren't necessarily associated with their background. So given that, um, can I ask, like fair to say if we'd gone back to uh, chat with Terry as she uh, entered University of Akron as a first year student, hey, guess what? Someday you're going to be a college president. You might have said, doubt it, or really, um, or a whole host of things. But at some point along your journey, that had to start crossing, you know, entering your mind where you started thinking, you know what? I've now gone from first-gen college student. I did the PhD thing, grit, perseverance. I dealt with the European group that, you know, published the research right in front of me. I got through that. I've now met deans, I've met presidents. Hey, maybe I could do that someday. When do you first recall even getting an inkling that maybe this could be something that you reach for? I'd say it's, there's two stages. One was I had a wonderful mentor at Rutgers Robert Johnson Medical School, Dr. Nicola Partridge. She was the chair of a different department than the one that I was in. She's the one that convinced the university to send me to an executive leadership program for a year. And so getting out there and being around other people and being in an environment where you learn leadership skills, because you, you don't have to just be born with them, to be around other people that aspire and to look at these people and say, these, these people are all great, not so am I, maybe we can do this. And then 
at that point, I didn't have an administrative position at Rutgers. I started getting them. And my husband sort of, he's like, well, you know, I'm going to take a slightly different career route so you can focus. And as I focus, I'm like, you know, the more I learn, the more I want to help people do with the university. I was having a harder time staying in my lane. And that's when my husband and I were having a conversation and he made a joke because they were looking for a new president at Ohio State University. And he's he's a big Buckeye fan, football fan. He's like, you should apply for that job. And I was like, maybe not that job, but now you would be a president. So I think that's when I started thinking about what would that look like? What kind of university would I want to be at? And what do I think I could do to really actually lead an institution as the institution, like helping others make sure that we all do what's best? And so tell me as much as you can about when you started exploring the Illinois State opportunity, what that kind of... Like, behind the curtain, what the process um, is to go from an initial, probably exploratory discussion to congratulations, you know, we're gonna go uh, do the inauguration. Um, what, what, what can you share with the group? So, so I'd share that it actually started, um, I reached out to another colleague back at Rutgers, Dr. Margaret Marsh, and I was nominating her to be a fellow of the American Association of Advancement Science. And I was having a conversation with her about my nominating her. And she said to me, well, well, it's time for you to start looking for a presidency. I want to nominate you. And I want you to look, you know, so we had a really great conversation about what I was looking for, really wanted to be in the Midwest, really wanted a university that was big enough to offer a lot, but, but small enough to still be student-focused. The Illinois State job just happened to come up right when I started looking for a job. She actually nominated me. And so spoke with the search firm, learned more about the institution. I think there's some good synergy here. Did a whole lot of research, tried to write a really good cover letter. And cover letters are really important. You know, those of us that have done them, where you really show you know what the institution is looking for and how you match. Did the, um, make the first cut, did the Zoom interview, right, with 30 people on the screen. That was, it was challenging, but it was really great. I had a really good sense that these were really authentic, Caring, very proud people, really excited about Illinois State. Um, interviewed during COVID, so I actually got to come to normal, but it was a confidential search, which is more and more common for presidencies because it can be very difficult for people to know that you're looking, especially during COVID when you know, people were under such stress. Uh, did some big interviews with people, it was very confidential. I felt really good about it, and one of the people that was helping running the search said, that was great, you did a great job, and three days later, they offered me the job. So you uh, you come back and you get announced, it's a big surprise, you have to tell your team you're leaving. Telling your team you're leaving is the hardest part, by far. Whether it's your colleagues that you work with on the cabinet, or the team that worked for me in the Office of Research. It, that was hard, but then it then you kind of come a lane up, and you, you, know, you start trying to make sure everything transitions well, and then you show up on the first day of work, and then you realize that as much as you thought you learned during the interview process, there's a thousand times more things to learn. So it, it, it's a whirlwind. I'll tell you, it, I, I had the first conversation about looking for a job right around Thanksgiving, maybe a little before, and I was the president on July 1st of the next year. So the whole thing happened in from applying to being here, and, and that was. You know, my first application for a presidency, I had a job with a seven months. 
or so. Well, congratulations. I mean, I think for me, and, and you shared a little bit about this in Florida, but even the thought that just a, a trusted colleague nominating you is is how this happens is um, was pretty eye opening to me. And and I do have to just ask, as you are now kind of staring down the one year mark here, right around the corner, um, if you could go back in time and uh, give yourself a little pep talk or coaching session on June 15th of last year, um, what are the two or three points you'd want to make sure that you uh, really keep in mind? Uh, that, that is a great question. I, I would say one is, and it's a little hard with COVID, I would have spent more time just meeting up with individuals and talking to them, whether it's, you know, over lunch or, or breakfast or things. There's there's less opportunity to, to just do those informal interactions, whether it's deans or, or, or a group of chairs or something. It was a little harder to do because we didn't go through the Delta wave and the Omicron wave and people weren't necessarily doing that. So I, I encourage people to, that personal time of just getting to know people and listening to their stories, I learn more from that than anything else. So that's one. Um, I, would, I would say figuring out how to learn about the community is a little harder than you think, but so important for your institution. And so there was a little bit of trial and error in terms of where are the places that I could meet the people that I really wanted to meet and give them my card and encourage them to reach out to me. It's much easier within your institution than outside. And so um, I would have liked to have a little better strategy on that. And then I think um, I underestimated how much I needed to learn about the state and how it functions. I'm very appreciative of public education. I'm very committed to it. I've been both public and private. Um, I have definitely learned as I've moved from New Jersey to Michigan to Illinois that Hawaii is every state. And so finding ways to learn about more. And I think I wish I would have picked a few, I'll give you a fourth one, picked a few more presidents to just sort of talk to, have lunch with, and just learn about their experiences. The club of presidents is an incredibly supportive network, incredibly supportive. So I think um, I'm working very hard to capitalize on that more and, and hopefully continue. That's an excellent uh, response. And um... I mean, think about it. You've got 20,000 plus students. You've got uh, over 3,000 staff members. You've got a state uh, to navigate. I mean, there's a lot, um, you know, that I'm sure the balance of sort of when is it appropriate to delegate um, versus when is it appropriate to just sit down and have that lunch directly has to be a constant um, struggle because you could, you know, have 10 lunches a day and still have plenty of people that you would love to and could benefit from having lunch with. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you can take it in smaller bites. You don't have to do it all at once. I think it's just, and I have been, um, I, I have a map of the university in my drawer right here, and I'm going to make sure I've seen every building. I was in the, the power plant, which was a lot of fun to go visit. I like to see the, what the parking decks look like. At, you know, my goal is before the end of the year that I've been inside every single building on the infrastructure on campus. So I understand what my infrastructure looks like. And in each of those places, I meet some more people. So that's kind of been a nice organizing tool for me, I think. I'm a, I'm a visual person, so I, it was great to go into the dormitory and see what that, 
And as you do that work, Terry, I'd imagine there are more selfies involved than as a VP of research. Like what's the ratio of selfies as a president versus research? Yeah, it's like a thousand to one. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Not just students, by the way. Alumni love pictures too. I have I have gotten really good at smiling and not looking. So tell me a little bit more about that aspect of the work. I mean, being such a public figure, whereas, you know, obviously you were in senior leadership roles, but there's just something right very different about the role that you're in now, especially coming from an other role into the role uh, that you're in now. So what's the sort of, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure you're walking through the supermarket and people are seeing you. I mean, it's that kind of local celebrity aspect that is inherent with, with a role like yours. Well, my husband says, part of the reason I always get recognized is I always seem to have on Illinois State gear. So, or or masks, or we're wearing masks. And so um, it is important to see out about the community. But you'd also be surprised the number of times, even on campus, people don't actually know who you are. Like, even though you've been on the front of a magazine, our students and their families and stuff are really busy. So I've actually learned the value of working every day and making sure to introduce myself and not assuming that people know me. But I will say one of my favorite things is to bomb the tours that happen right outside my office. Um, we have a beautiful quad. It's actually an arboretum. It's got a lot of trees. And I'm walking between meetings. There's always a tour going on. And I always pop over and uh, I've met all the tour guys and I'm, you know, thank them for their work and they love it. I just pop them. And I always make sure to introduce myself. I don't go with the assumption that everyone knows me. It's, it's amazing the number of people that know. I love it, and they have to love it as well. Um, can I ask, uh, you know, as it relates to getting a handle on the business of philanthropy, um, you know, tuition is obviously a primary driver of of revenue when you think about the business of higher education. Um, but you've got a two hundred million dollar endowment, which is which is growing. Um, you've got uh, you know almost a five hundred million dollar budget. And so, you know, again, tuition, a big factor, and I'm sure a lot of attention and focus on enrollment and sort of competing in the landscape of higher ed. Um, but just tell me a little bit about your perspective on advancement, maybe through your career, you know, how it's evolved and how you think about the role of a college president as it relates to being a partner uh, in advancement today. So I think the exciting thing that advancement can do, even more than external research grants, um, and even more than state funding, is inspire people to have big ideas. Because when people donate to the university, they're looking for something that resonates with them personally, right? So it could be, in our case, we, um, there's been a lot of talk about having an indoor practice facility, not just for athletics, but the fact that we need more space for our student groups to go, for our ROTC to go, and to come out with a big idea, and this is what it's gonna cost, and this is the vision, of what it's going to be and get people really excited about it um, and to get the students excited about it, to get the, the, the student athletes excited about it. It's, um, it brings an energy campus of an idea that you just wouldn't be able to do otherwise. It'd be impossible for athletics, except for about 25 you know, programs in this country, to make enough money to pay for an investment like that. But we're excited about it. We're getting groundbreaking. We're getting ribbon cutting. And it gets people excited about concept. You do the same thing with a new program to educate teachers for the city of Chicago. 
you know, we embrace our history as a normal university, which is a teaching college, got lots and lots of alums, there are a lot of them in Chicago. How do we bring those things together? We come up with a really big idea that's it's really transformational. We solve a problem, we help the students get through, we partner with people in Chicago, we get outside of, of normal and, and get out there. And those are really exciting ideas. Or, you know, um, we can, again, scholarships. I always tell our donors, I had scholarships as a student. It made all the difference in my life. I only had to work my job instead of teaching. Right? I still work hard. I still remember the names of those scholarships. And when the, when the scholarship has a name, it's different than me just giving financial aid. It means that there's a human being that is invested in the student to make sure they get the way through. And so, again, I take on a lot about these stories, and it's about that. I see philanthropy is doing the sorts of things the university on its own cannot do. And that's where I get really excited to sort of inspire people to think about big ideas and we'll see if we can find the donor. And if the donors know that we're interested in big ideas, they're going to come to us, right? People that are associated with the university and new people. Our, our practice facility has brought in people that had not donated to the university before because they were excited about what this could mean for our community to be able to run this into our practice facility for, you know, fourth grade kids playing lacrosse. So I think that's, it's that ability to do I love it. That is such a great way to frame it. And, you know, when you kind of think about the core, you know, enrollment, tuition, somewhat predictable, it's going to be within a pretty tight band. Whereas with the right big idea, you can raise tens or hundreds of millions or zero if it's the wrong idea. And you don't have that same kind of um, Delta, if you will, you know, in other kind of revenue generating parts of the institution, for sure. And um, it's also that $50,000. It's that named library room that has space for lactating mothers in the multiple that, that a family's name, right, after their mom. And that, that, that students can go in there with their children because we have, you know, we have students that have children. It's, it's fantastic, right? And so at those, at, at any level, philanthropy makes a difference at the university. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. My, my wife forwarded me an email from our, our kids' school um, earlier today, and they're doing a campaign, and it was, um, you know, the, the bricks, right? So brick by brick. Um, and I think it was maybe, you know, $250, $250 for, you know, the smallest brick, and then sort of... Um, up from there, I was talking to a former teammate of mine today, actually, who's quarterback when I, I played football at, at Brown University. And um, the football team is raising money right now for their new locker room. And there's an opportunity for $10,000 to name a locker. And that can be paid out over a multi-year period. And so for a lot of people in the football community, it's sort of that that first opportunity for maybe a stretch gift or a you know, aspirational gift, you know, somebody that's been given a hundred bucks a year or a couple hundred bucks a year now starting to really think, Hey, you know, maybe that is something that, that I would like to participate in. And so I, I think it's um, interesting when you think about, you know, the multi-million dollar big idea, but even to take somebody who's lobbing in the hundred dollar a gift a year, not really thinking about it. And then just giving them that next sort of stretch opportunity um, to, consider doing more. And I think that's probably one of the real um, intersections of, you know, the art and science of philanthropy is how do you come up with the right packages to 
give people an opportunity to to stretch into their first you know major gift or leadership gift for example and i think it's a perfect example because we also want to engage people in philanthropy earlier right than later so i like the idea that if you come to my tent for a football game yes you've got established owners that people will recognize their names because they're on you know major um, initiatives at the university but you've also got young people where that thousand dollar gift is a lot to them that they can inspire to follow someone else and that we bring that we bring diversity to get it right that we that we, we make everyone feel welcome bring their ideas to the university and I think that that's we're, we're certainly looking to do that too on, on our foundation boards help to think about what does the future of philanthropy look like because it's everything keeps looking different right and so where do we want to be well and I yeah, I think your your point just around, um, you know, even your personal story um, as a first gen student, as a beneficiary of scholarship, you know, as 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 my you know mine being being similar in that regard, um, I think about myself as a beneficiary and and how much my life has been transformed by higher ed, how much your life continues to be transformed by higher ed, but then I think about how have I expressed gratitude to the people who actually donated the money that actually supported me. And I feel like, you know, now some of those folks have probably long passed, but the reality is I don't even know. And I feel like we're at a spot now where, you know, let's say that today, you know, I or a group of my friends were able to support an Illinois state student. Um, How do we make it not sort of generic scholarship or generic financial aid, but it's, it's, uh, you know, that student over there, that sophomore is the person who is benefiting from your philanthropy. And this is what they're studying. And there's always a balance of like student privacy and, and, you know, not everybody kind of wants to be on, on that pedestal, but um, just think if we can start to link a little bit more of the, the the impact you know the story the need the philanthropy happens and then from a stewardship perspective really being able to connect those students back to the donors um, in some more personalized way than thank you for your gift right and and I don't know you know how you think about that obviously it's a big part of um, what we've been doing with our thank you platform is just how do we kind of scale that personalized engagement you know, recognizing that the old way of doing it was the scholarship luncheon once a year where everybody would kind of come together. What's the digital and scaled version of that scholarship luncheon? So I think the digital one is really interesting. I think that we're all, we've all learned that we think that our older donors don't know how to use technology. Well, we're wrong, right? They, the world's changed. It's much easier to put people together even if they retired in Florida. So I'll tell you a fabulous story. Sean Hayes, the amazing actor, remember from Roman Grace, is probably one of the most known for as an alum of Illinois State. He endowed a scholarship. He was performing up in Chicago a few weeks ago in a, a new um, performance. It's called um, Good Night Oscar. And he met with a bunch of alums and friends of Illinois State after the performance. In the audience was his scholar, the recipient of the scholarship that he gave to the university. Young man stood up and introduced himself. The look on Sean Hayes' face was such joy. 
right? It reminds you why it's so important to do that. And of course, he was like, I want to know your name, how can I help you? It was, it was because the, the, the gift doesn't stop with the money, right? He he knows I have the Sean Hayes scholarship, and now met this person, I met the student. So so again, is how can we make that happen? And we just because to, yeah. On one hand, it's the right thing to do. But on the other hand, what if that inspires Sean to do more? And how much kind of philanthropy is being left on the table by that emotional connection, which is obviously such a unique opportunity for it to manifest in the way you just described. But what if that kind of emotion could be experienced by philanthropists more consistently how much more additional revenue might be unlocked and impact generated? Yeah, because I think you've hit on that. The days of people just giving you money are over. When, when people make a donation to a university, they expect an outcome. There is, I think, a lot more accountability in philanthropy. And it's our way to demonstrate that we're putting that gift to good use as well. And that, that's part of our stewardship of the gift, but also, as you say, building a relationship to the next opportunity. Well, one of your colleagues uh, or um, in the higher ed sector, but also one of your uh, alumni, John Morris, is the senior vice president of advancement at Auburn University. And John has been a long time, actually was our first guest ever on the podcast. And, um, you know, he often talks about just, you know, what is the problem that we're solving, right? What is the problem, right? In his case, you know, he, he said this when he was at Kansas State. I know he's taken it to Auburn with him. It applies at Illinois State we are going to be a conduit by which you philanthropist can make an impact and solve a problem. And here is the problem that we think you could be solved. Here's the vision of how we're going to solve it. Here's the cost associated with solving it. Um, but I think that's a really, and it's hard sometimes, right. To, to really kind of um, uh, frame things through that lens, but the more we can get to, We've got a problem that needs to be solved. We're an efficient way for you to do that, philanthropist. Uh, I think we're, we're going to be um, better served. I would encourage your viewers to read. A, it's a white paper from the Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities, the Council on Research. And it's called Public Impact Focused Research. And I helped to write one of, the, one of the chapters. And it's a short read. It's free. And it talks about the way that universities are working to solve big problems and give some very specific examples of ways that these things can be funded, ways that philanthropic dollars can give us the pilot money to then go after federal or state dollars to execute really big problem-solving ideas. Um, and there's a lot of great examples. So I think it's exactly what you're talking about. It's a nice way to see how public universities in particular are looking to, to tackle those problems in partnership with philanthropists. So uh, I want to be respectful of your time. We've got a little bit uh, of scheduled allotment left here. But on that note, when you think about being, you know, almost a year in now at Illinois State, better understanding the institution, internal, external constituencies, what are some of the problems that you're excited about influencing when you think about Illinois State in the context of the higher ed landscape? Um, where is your area of focus? What are you most excited about in the coming years? Well, that's such a hard question because there's so much to be excited about at Illinois State. Uh, and some of this was, was rumbling and starting to come to fruition, which is why I'm so excited about this job. One is um, we have a fabulous college of nursing, the Mennonite College of Nursing, that 
be part of the hospital, moved into our system. And we're looking to at least double, if not more, the number of nurses that we are able to contribute, including um, the PhD nurses that can also become nurse educators for the next generation of nurses. And that sort of an investment requires us to be able to partner with, with hospitals and healthcare systems for the clinical placement. We're going to put a big investment in the simulation. And so we're getting ready to do big fundraising to more than double the size of our teaching space in nursing. This, you know, it, it's timed with COVID, but it's not about COVID. We knew that there was a growing nursing shortage. We're excited about that. Um, we're also very excited about how can we rethink P through 12 education. As our history is a normal college and one of the largest producers of teachers in the country. What does is, what is the future teacher need to look like? Um, how do we get more people into the teaching uh, profession? Because it's taken some big hits. And how do we get teachers to where we really need them? So one example I gave is Chicago, but the other is teachers in rural areas. How can we, we come up with these creative programs that help to bring people to the teaching profession? Again, a place where you don't want students graduating with a lot of debt, but you also want to be funding really creative scholarship in that area. So that's, that's really exciting. And then we have just been approved by the state to create our first college of engineering. And so that is really gonna build on our foundation of strength in math and physical sciences, but we have this opportunity to build it from scratch, to partner with corporations, to design our space from the floor up and to design our programs. And so to bring in big thinkers with us at the forefront about how we can make this a very inclusive uh, college of engineering, where you walk in the door and you know, we don't say look to your left, look to your right. You know, only one of you will be left at the end, but Illinois State sees you as an engineer. How are we going to get you there? And I think that again is going to be a really great opportunity for partnership, for philanthropy to help us to really um, take this forward. And those are three of the big things on the academic side. I just add a fourth, which is our women's athletic programs in the 50th anniversary of Title IX are doing amazing things. We've, we've won our conference. The tournaments in volleyball and basketball are going to be NCAAs. We've won tennis. They're going to be NCAAs angle. And so, again, sometimes I like people to think about the sports, the big sports like football and men's basketball, but these women's sports and these student athletes that are um, Mary Compton, she's an academic all American at LA State University. So, supporting these programs where you're supporting the students at the same time. I saw the women's tennis team is going to be heading to Columbus to take on the Buckeyes per your Twitter account. Who's your husband cheering for? Uh, Illinois State. The only thing is we cannot go because that's commencement this Saturday. Otherwise, he would be there wearing his, Ohio, his Illinois State colors and he's, he's loyal to a fault. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, okay. Closing thoughts. What should, so you have worked in a variety of roles. Um, now as president, which oftentimes is referred to as a chief fundraiser. Um, but along the way, right, you were kind of a, a partner or a beneficiary or collaborator, collaborator with advancement. Most of our um, audience is squarely in that advancement world. What advice would you give them as they think about engaging the faculty, the, the campus partners that... Um, maybe sometimes are a bit nebulous, confusing. You know, the, the dean over there is an enigma. We're not sure what to think. What, what advice would you have um, for, for our core audience? 
assume that part of the reason these people are not necessarily engaged in advancement is because they do not understand advancement. There's so I think that training is critically important. I had the opportunity to do training at Western Michigan on fundraising, it was great. And from there, it helps, I think, our fundraising professionals see who's excited to come to that training, right? Who do you see really performing and you know they just need some confidence? And so not everybody is necessarily going to be easy at, you know, great at it. It is a skill, but I think getting people that level of confidence. I'd also say, you know, just explain to them that they don't have to be the ones that ask people for money. That is why we have advancement professionals. And I think one of the things I really like here at Illinois State is our advancement professionals are very visible, you know, working with our deans, working with our faculty, making them understand that they've got support. And so don't have those people be strangers, not just your VP for advancement. My academics, he's terrific and he still helps me. I always am asking him questions. So create that culture where it's okay for a dean to that their first thought after meeting an alum that's not been associated for a while is call, can I call advance and get some help? That, that, that advancement is a huge resource for people to help them get these big dreams. I think that our biggest challenge is getting people to have big dreams, right? People are afraid if they don't work enough. It's not failure. The president is not going to think you're a failure if you have a great idea. And, you know, maybe it doesn't get funded exactly the way you want, but we love talking about these things. So you've got people to help you. And I think that that's, to me, that's the most important lesson. I have benefited that on day one, Pat Rickery Hickman gave me names and phone calls to start calling some of our major donors and myself. And that has been awesome. And that's because he is the professional that helps me be that fundraiser in chief. So I, I love it. I love it. All of our advancement professionals. Well, uh, you've referenced multiple times throughout the conversation just the importance of a story. Um, and you clearly, I mean, I'm just going to say it for a chemist. You're a good storyteller. I don't know if that, you know, comes, maybe that must have been the third year course. I didn't make it that far, but um, no, it really is fun to, to just have a window into um, your world for you to share. And um, I think to also just shine a light on, um, you know, whether it's folks that are listening that want to um, pursue a, a senior advancement leadership role, or maybe there's some listening who, want to try to aspire to be a president someday, you know, the fact is, um, you can do it, you know, you put some pieces in place, you had great mentorship. Um, and then ultimately, um, you know, it, it, it happened. And I think sometimes it just seems like there's, uh, it's just a very opaque process for most people. So thank you for giving us a window into it. It's my pleasure. Love it. Well, with that, this concludes episode one of Terry Talk. Just kidding. That is the new podcast that we're going to be working on. But uh, this does conclude today's episode of the Raise podcast. Uh, and I just want to say thank you again to Terry Kinsey, president of Illinois State University. Thanks so much, Brent. And best wishes to everybody.